Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for sending your spirit to speak to our hearts. Lord, I know this message is so important. It can break the shackles of sin for some of the people here and some of those that are going to be listening on Audioverse. Lord, I pray that you will send your spirit to every person who's listening, that you will drive away the forces of darkness, that they may not have power to distract. Send your angels to be a wall of fire around us to keep us focused on you, not on ourselves or anything else. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this is part two. I presented the previous part before, which some of you may have heard on Audioverse, but this part is something that builds much more on it. It was frustrating to me finishing that one, realizing I had so much more to say, but I just got to say, okay, guys, just work on it. Here are some general principles. But this is going to go more deeply into how do you really base your life on God, your sense of worth and identity, and how do you break out of the the ways of thinking that are so normal in our culture. First, I'd like to point out, there are two paths. Two paths diverge into a wood, right? There are only two paths in life that you can follow. You may make a million different choices on what you're going to do, but your fundamental motives are going to be one of two. Either you're going to pursue God's glory primarily, or you're going to pursue your own glory. You're going to pursue holiness and glorifying God, or you're going to pursue happiness and getting what you want. And all of us, until the day we die, struggle between these two fundamental motives. We know that God wants us to be one way, but we see in our members another man warring for the supremacy, our self, our carnal nature, right? So we've talked before about some of the things that we pursue instead of God the ways we try to satisfy our thirst by taking matters into our own hands. And that's, that's a very fundamental part of our nature. Our generation, more than any generation in the past, loves control. We love control. We love to be able to control the temperature in our house. And the air conditioning goes on. Wow, we feel good. We decide, I want to go to this place. It's only three hours drive from here and we get in the car and we're right there. You know, when I was in Africa, we found there were a lot of difficulties in churches that were trying to transition from being white to being multicultural because the white people are saying well if somebody agrees that they're going to be in charge of Sabbath schools or song service why don't they just show up at 9:30 for song service well that's great if you have a car and you can get to the church on your own and you have a watch so that tells you what time it is but you see, in the black culture, up until recent generations, they didn't even have a watch. They didn't have a car. They're waiting for the taxi to come, and maybe the bus doesn't come this week, or it comes late. But that's okay, because in the black culture, they knew, if I'm not there on time, some brother will take over. We're all going to be there all day long, rejoicing in the spirit. What does it matter whether I'm there at 9.30 or at 10? So I'm on the program. Somebody will take over, because there was this this brotherhood of we'll all be in there together and more relaxed rules because the black people weren't used to being in control of their lives but that drove the white people wild they were used to being in control you can get in your BMW and get to church on time if you want to they just didn't understand the cultural clash we are people who are used to being in control and when our air conditioning goes out we have a heart attack how can we handle this 
I don't have running water today. Forget that people for thousands of years didn't have running water and did just fine. But not me. Lord, how can you allow this to happen to me today? I've got to get my hair looking good because I have this appointment this morning. You know, <laughs> we think that we are in control. And because we think that we're in control, it really unnerves us when we find out we're not. When we see the weather forecast, which for thousands of years nobody had, they woke up in the morning and saw what the weather was going to be like. But now, we think, okay, I know what the weather's going to be like. Now I've got a plot ahead. Oh no, there's a hurricane coming. I can't even do anything about it. We love control. But God wants us to know that He is the one who's in control. In some ways, I think that our, our journey to heaven is kind of like what I went through when I was climbing Mount Whitney. This is a picture of climbing on Mount Whitney. That is not me. Um, but there was a place, not this place on the trail, but there was a place that I remember there was a very steep drop-off. And a steep drop-off, when you look down a steep drop-off, imagine that you're walking down a steep drop, uh, 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 where you're walking on a trail and there's a steep drop on both sides. You're right on that narrow way going up this, this hiking trail. This is what it's like on the way to heaven. There is a narrow way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. There are two sides that you can fall off of, but both of them are similar. You see the narrow way that leads unto life? We find that by looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we start looking at self. That's right. We start looking at self, and maybe that will lead us to pride. That's the one side of the trail you can fall off on. If I fall into pride, pride makes me feel like I've got it actually pretty much under control. Remember the Pharisees? I tithe mint and anise and cumin. I do all of these wonderful things, and we may feel pretty good about ourselves. I have a good job. I've got my life pretty much pulled together. I finished college unlike other people around me. I even had great grades, and I don't actually look too bad, and I'm married to a really nice guy, and my kids are healthy. Life is good. I may feel in those circumstances like I'm actually just fine. I'm a good person. And this is what you'll hear often in our culture. Well, I'm not a really, I'm, not, I'm a basically good person. I may not go to church, but I'm a basically good person, right? Or we may fall onto the other side of self-reliance. On the other side, we fall into despair. I'm so bad, God himself can't save me. It's still looking to self, isn't it? There's a whole continuum, a range of ways that we can look at ourselves. There's that pride where we feel like we're just fine. There's that despair where we feel like we're not worth anything. The depression or the anxiety side. Anxiety is when you're proud. You think, I can handle this. And then we, we come face to face with the fact that we can't do everything. Suddenly the car breaks down at the same time we're on the way to do that and we don't have lunch for the kids ready and all these things are happening and suddenly the anxiety just builds and builds and we want to scream because we thought we could take care of it ourselves. Our pride is confronted and therefore our anxiety shows. On the other side, depression is when I, I fling my hands into the air and go whirling into the abyss. I can't do it and we go curl up in the corner and wrap ourselves in the blanket of despair. I wish I could die. I wish I could just go to sleep and never wake up. And I'm sure some of us battle with this. I certainly have in the past and every now and then the devil comes back and says, wouldn't it be nice just to go sleep. Wouldn't it be nice just to escape? And then of course I can't escape because I have three children. 
If I can't escape, then I start lashing out. Why won't you guys leave me alone? Then I could just have a few moments of peace. If only you'd stop climbing on me and slobbering on me and doing all these things. It's back to control, isn't it? When we don't get what we want, happiness, and our goal is not holiness, then we're going to start shoving those who are getting in the way of our happiness out of the way. If you would just stop this, I could be happy. The two great longings of the human heart are what? Love and value. You know, I remember one day that my husband and I, um, I woke up late and he was just about to head out the door to work. It's nine o'clock in the morning. And I looked around, the kitchen was awful. Crusty dishes, it looked like a dish bomb went off in my kitchen, it was everywhere. The kitchen floor was sticky, the dining room table was covered with dishes, the kids are all in their pajamas with milk down the front of them. And my husband's heading out the door, bye dear, gotta get to work, okay, bye. So he goes off to work, and I just thought, okay, I gotta do it. I can do this. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. You know. So I start chugging along, and then somehow, for reasons unbeknownst to me, as I was hauling a load of stuff out into the garage, I looked around the garage and I thought, this garage needs cleaning. And I remembered my husband had said not long before, Nicole, I really want to get this garage clean sometime. And I thought, I can do this. Dun, 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 put on my superwoman cape, and I started cleaning the garage. Remember, I have three small children. So my three small children are tearing up the house while I'm in there cleaning the garage. I go back and forth, you know, put on a DVD or something for them, try to keep them happy. And I go back and start cleaning. Unfortunately, our garage was not too big and not too terribly messy. So I got a whole bunch of stuff out into the trash can. I organized the shelves. I put together a bunch of things to go to Goodwill. and. Then I swept everything clean. Wow, it looked great. But now it was 12 o'clock and my husband had said he was gonna be home for lunch, right? 12.45, he's gonna be home for lunch. Great, so I race inside and I start making lunch. I don't remember what I made, but I was gonna make something really good for him. Oh yeah, and my mind was brimming with great ideas as I shoved dirty dishes aside and make food. And believe it or not, I actually got the food ready. It was a little bit late, but it was ready on, and, and it looked wonderful, it smelled wonderful. But 12.45 came and 12.45 went and my husband wasn't there. But no problem because I wanted to get the kitchen clean anyway. So now he's not there, I can make it look even better for him. The garage is clean. Now he's going to walk in and see the kitchen and go, wow, it didn't look like that when I left. So I'm throwing dishes into the dishwasher as fast as I can and scrubbing everything and getting the pots dried and put away and making the window look good. I was feeding the kids, of course, on the side and, you know, watching them make a disaster of this nice dining room and all the food, but not going to think about that. I'm going to make this house look great. I would have mopped the floor and put flowers in the window if I'd had time. I was going to impress this man because I love him, right? It was all love, unselfishness. <clears throat> but he didn't show up. One o'clock came and 1.15 and 1.30 and 1.45. The food is cold. It takes my husband a grand total of two minutes to drive to my house. Thank you very much. And uh, it's not like he really <laughs> couldn't be there, you know. He could have at least called, but I figure he's in class or he's talking to somebody. I don't know what he's doing. So he finally gets there. He drives into the garage. And I hear him as he opens the door coming in from the garage. I'm standing there, whoops, in my spotless kitchen. I'm standing there. Oh. To see and he's on his cell phone 
And this is what I hear him say. I'm not even exaggerating. He says, yes, Greg, is that you? Are we going to have that meeting at 2 o'clock still? OK, I'll see you then. And I look at my watch. It is now 10 minutes until 2. He races in, oh, hi, honey, sits down, wolfs down this nice cold food that I made for him. Wow, sorry, it was a crazy day. I sit down at the dining room table beside him. <laughs> Beautiful, noble wife that I am. I say, I cleaned the garage. <laughs> he said, yes, I saw it when I drove in. Thank you so much. He's halfway through his meal now. I cleaned the kitchen, too. <laughs> oh, yes, I noticed. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. You're wonderful. He wipes his mouth and looks at his watch. He now has four minutes before he needs to be back at the office. <clears throat> he said, well, honey, I've got to get my teeth brushed. He stands up from the table, and then he looks at me. And for some reason, unbeknownst to me, known only to my husband, he uh, sat back down. He said, um, is something wrong? <laughs> I said, <clears throat> I cleaned the garage. <coughs> he said, yes, honey, I know. It, it was wonderful. I'm so thankful. And you cleaned the kitchen, and the food was wonderful, and you're just so great. And he looks at his watch furtively. <laughs> and I said, and he said, um, um, I guess, should I? <laughs> I said, go, go, go. <laughs> He's got to go brush his teeth, right? And he goes, no, no, I'll just call and tell them I'm not coming to the meeting. And I said, no, no, don't do that. I can imagine it. He calls his boss. Hi, Greg, I'm sorry, I can't make it to the meeting. Um, I have married a wife and cannot come. <laughs> what are they going to think of me? <laughs> now I'm not feeling like I'm a wonderful wife at all. I'm just an angry wife, right? So my husband says, I'll just stay. I say, no, 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 hurry. You're going to be late. You're going to be late. Go brush your teeth. I don't know why husbands think that wives are so confusing. <laughs> so he uh, wanders blinking off to the bathroom to brush his teeth quickly. And I sat there at the table and said, Lord, what went wrong? What's going on here? And right away, you know, the Lord convicted me. He's so wonderful. Immediately when I said, Lord, what went wrong? The blinders fell off and I realized I didn't do all these things for love. I did them for selfishness. There's nothing wrong with cleaning the garage. There's nothing wrong with making a great meal. Nothing wrong with the cleaning the kitchen. Heaven help us if I don't. But the problem was my motive, wasn't it? My motive was selfish. I wanted praise. I wanted my husband to say, you're amazing. And so I wasn't doing these good things for him out of love for him. I was doing them out of a desire for him to satisfy me. You see, God calls us to look at our motives. And right away, I realized what a selfish wife I've been. I raced to the bathroom and I said, honey, I'm so sorry. I realized what I did. I explained. I apologized. He hugged me and kissed me and forgave me. And everything was sunny again. God is so good. I love what he does in marriage and how it refines us. Wow, it's very refining. Trust me, those of you who aren't there yet. <laughs> God wants to help us to find our sense of lovability and value in Him. And when we do that, because you notice what was conspicuously absent that morning? My devotional time. 
I had to spend time with God. And you know, the reason why I had slept in until 9 o'clock was because my husband had let me sleep. He took care of the kids so that I could sleep in late. That's why I was so late that morning. That's why he had so much work to do at the office that he couldn't get home earlier. Because he'd stayed late so that I could sleep. What a loving husband. How could I think of him as so selfish? But because my eyes were blinded by my own selfishness, I looked at everything and saw everybody else's selfishness. Right? God wants us to base our sense of worth and identity on him. This is a picture of the Hope Diamond. Do you know, anybody know how much the Hope Diamond is worth? It's an estimated 200 to 250 million dollars. How does anybody figure out how much something like that is worth? I for sure wouldn't be paying that for it. But somebody out there would be willing to pay that much money for it. And that's why they say that's how much it's worth. When we estimate our worth based on the price that was paid for us, our perspective on ourselves changes so much. When you look at your body and say, man, I'm not nearly as good looking or as tall or as short or as thin or as just right proportion as so-and-so, we're missing the point. God says, I made you in my image. There's no higher honor in the universe. When we estimate our worth based on that, we find a sense of security that never goes away. You want to say insecurity is your problem, low self-esteem is your problem, codependency is your problem. No, your problem is sin, and the answer is Christ. There is a God-given need to be loved that is born into every human infant. It is a legitimate need that must be met from cradle to grave. If children are deprived of love, love, if that primal need for love is not met, they carry the scars for life. This is what Love is a Choice, page 34, says. Now, I'm not going to disagree that we all have this God-given need for love, but do we have to be scarred for life? The Bible says, He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Now, binding up is a process, isn't it? You don't, you don't hear about Jesus binding up the wounds of people that he was healing when he was walking around the earth, do you? No, he touched them, he healed them. They were healed like that, instantly. But when God heals emotional wounds, it usually takes time. If you break your leg, no matter how much you pray, your leg is probably still going to be broken the next day. And if you try walking on it, you're going to damage yourself. Sometimes our pain needs to be healed and it just needs time. People think if I'm just spiritual enough, I will recover from the breakup immediately and not even grieve. Well, if your husband died, would that be a healthy approach? I'm so happy, I don't even need to grieve, not even going to miss the guy. <laughs> Hello? We live in a painful world. That's called denial. That's called lying to yourself and it will lead to when you finally hit rock bottom, you will crash and your grief will be so overwhelming you may not be able to cope for a while. God wants us to grieve in a healthy way. He wants us to be able to cry. That's why he made every human being with the ability to laugh and cry. You notice how go that goes across language barriers? We all have those abilities, even as babies. God wants us to be able to grieve. But there's a, something different that goes on when we haven't been given that gift of love by our parents and we don't understand God's love for us. If we don't understand God's love for us, we tend to sin in ways of self-protection or depending on others. We, we isolate ourselves or we cling to others. 
instead of Christ. Both of those are just sinful, natural, carnal tendencies of the heart. God wants us to become centered on him. And when we drink deeply from the fountain of living water, he sets us free from that need, that, that I'm going to be forever scarred kind of a mentality. That doesn't mean that there aren't scars from the things that happen to us, but those scars are not terrible things. A scar doesn't hurt, does it? If I have an infected wound on my arm here, I can say, well, I'm just going to pray and it's going to go away. And I may ignore it, and it may even heal over. You know, sometimes when you have an infected wound, it can heal over on the outside, but the infection remains inside. That can be even worse. I once injured my foot. I had a nail go almost completely through my foot. And um, like an idiot, I was playing softball. I, I jumped across this pile of boards and I landed on a board with a nail sticking straight up, crunch. But I, could, I couldn't get my foot off the nail, but I could reach the softball. And that's what I did. I reached for the softball, I grabbed it, I threw it back to the game, and then I started working on getting my foot off the nail. I got a raging infection from that. I know you're all shocked. Um, and I didn't do anything about it right away because I, I didn't want people to make a big deal about it. I thought, well, it's just a nail, it hurts, but you know, people were saying, oh, come on, Nicole, it's just this tiny little hole. And not realizing it had gone all the way through my foot, it, it just barely bruised the skin on the top. I didn't really pay attention. Well, I got a raging infection. And then I started taking some antibiotics far too late. And then when I had this pus building up in my foot, the, the doctor lanced my foot. I know this is a glorious illustration, but you won't forget it, right? <laughs> so the, the doctor lanced my foot. He made a little cut, and he tried to get this infection out, but it still wouldn't all come out. Well, then. Eventually, not long after that, my antibiotic pills were running out, but I was getting to be more and more pain. I said, I've got to go to a doctor. But things were busy, things were tight at home, and when I finally got to the doctor, the doctor took one look at me and he said, you've got to go in the hospital. You could lose that foot if you keep this up. My infection had gone into the bone in my foot. But it looked so good on the outside, it wasn't even red. It was okay. The infection was raging down inside. And you see, that's what happens with sin. The infection rages down inside. Sin is like an infection. An infected wound is not just going to naturally go away if you just ignore it. You need to get that infection out. And God has ways of getting infection out, right? If you've got a boil, the boil comes to the surface. It's not pretty. It's nasty. It hurts. But it gets out, right? The infection comes out. God's way of healing things is to bring the infection out and then to heal from the inside out. If you have a sin that someone else has sinned against you, say someone else has slashed you with a sword, it doesn't matter whether they did it on purpose or they did it accidentally, it hurts. It can hurt even more if you know somebody hurt you intentionally. But your sin against them is when it gets infected. If you sin in resentment toward that person, in bitterness toward them or toward, toward God, saying, God, how could you allow this to happen to me? Well then, that's when you start sinning and your wound gets infected. When you have an infection, it hurts, doesn't it? And you avoid touching that arm. Don't touch it. No, don't touch it. That's going to hurt. We avoid it. We, we find some way to compromise. I'll just use this arm. No, no, I'm fine. I don't need any help. No, 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 don't bring that scalpel anywhere close to me. I don't want this wound lanced. It would really hurt, wouldn't it? And God in his love keeps coming back to us and saying, there's some sin right there and it's hurting you. 
And you say, no, 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 I think it's actually gone. I, I, if I look at it closely, I see it's gone. And now the boil is going to come up on my leg, right? Because the sin, the idolatry issue is a systemic issue. It's all throughout us. And God has to do surgery and take it out. But when God does surgery, he takes it all out. And the scar doesn't hurt. And then someday later on, when someone else comes to you and says, I have this terrible thing that I've been through. Maybe I was abused as a child. Maybe whatever it is. I can never be healed. You can say, look at this, I have a scar. I used to have that problem too, but God healed me and the same God who healed me can heal you. Can you see how scars are a blessing? When we start forgetting about what God is like, what his grace is, what he's done for us, we look at the scar and say, wow, God, look how far you've brought me. Look what you delivered me from. You are so good. You are so wonderful. You see, scars are not a terrible thing. The world will tell you you carry the scars for life, but God wants us to use those scars to show us, to remind us of his love and to remind others of his love. A scar is not a bad thing when you look at it that way. The bad thing would be to keep the infection. <clears throat> but nowadays, our culture is kind of trying to tell us that it really doesn't, it's not your fault. You've been through all these terrible things and that's why you sinned. I love this quotation from The Economist, February 26, 1994. It will not be long at this rate before the mandatory sentence for a crime of violence is a hug and a good cry. Wouldn't you love that? If somebody kills your father and mother, oh, the poor guy, he must have gone through a terrible childhood. I'm sure his father and mother didn't love him. That's why he killed mine. Great. But somewhere along the way, we've got to take responsibility for our own sins. This is what comes from a culture that builds their moral standards based on human standards instead of God's standards. God says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Yes, he can rescue us from sin, but he does it by bringing that scalpel to us and saying, it's time to get rid of that. Let me cut it out. And we may go, no, no, but ultimately the only way out is through the sword of the spirit that cuts. When people are big, God is small. This is what we were just talking about in the earlier presentation. In John 12, verses 42 and 43, it says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also, many believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved what? The praise of men more than the praise of God. The fear of man is not a new thing. It's an old sin. Adam chose harmony with Eve over harmony with God, didn't he? And all of a sudden, look, he lost both. Not long after that, when God says, um, come out here, let's talk. He says, uh, it's Eve's fault, Eve's fault. And then she's going, what do you mean my fault? You weren't even with me. Why didn't you stay with me like you're supposed to? Blame, you know? There's no harmony in a home that's not Christ-centered. Don't trick yourself into believing that if you marry a person who is forbidden by God, that you can make it all work just by being so Christian, by being so loving. Without Christ at the center of your relationship, you have no idea how much pain and how much sin will filter through your home. Fear of man is a biblical term, but we have a lot of things that, different manifestations of this problem in our present culture. The need to be in style. You know, I have a personal pet peeve, Abercrombie and Fitch. <laughs> These, this profoundly disgusting company 
that their advertising is openly raunchy. They, they get things just so dirty that I'm, I can't even let my children walk past their advertisements. And yet, people will have to have Abercrombie and Fitch splashed across their sweatshirt or they won't go out. How many name brands are there that we feel we need? You know, I remember when I was in college, I didn't have much money. And I was self-conscious about the fact that my clothes were sometimes cheap and ill-fitting. Other girls had great clothes. They, they looked so good to me. Their clothes were from Gap. Wow, you know. And when I finally got a little bit of money after I was out of school and I started shopping in the secondhand stores, I was obsessed with finding the name brands. Wow, you know. And I, I would sling a, a sweater over the back of the, the chair and make sure that the tag was showing. I want people to know I am finally in style. <laughs> I remember when I first came to the first GYC. This is embarrassing to tell you, but I will anyway. It was here at Pine Springs Ranch. And I was so nervous and stressed because there were going to be people here that I knew from college. And I thought, oh no, what am I going to wear? I laid like all the clothes I owned on the bed. And I was like, what about this? No, they might, I don't know if that's really the most, oh, uh, what about this one? I was so stressed about what I was going to wear because of what these people would think of me. Because I wanted them to know I'd finally arrived. I married a great guy. I have clothes that are in style. That's the fear of man. What a horrible bondage to be in. We need to be in style. You know, the Adventist jewelry. We, people who would never dream of wearing real jewelry that costs 10 cents at a secondhand store will spend $50 on a sweatshirt because they want to be in style or more. The Bible says, not with gold or pearls or costly ray. We make a big deal about no gold, no pearls or costly ray. But anyway, but God says jewelry is jewelry. If we're decorating ourselves for the purpose of other people paying attention to us, the costly array, that's spending money that could be spent in much better ways for not just for nothing. It's not just, well, I need quality clothes. I'm not arguing with that. But personally, I don't think it's the best thing to wear stuff that has that name brand splashed across the front. You know, you, this is between you and God, but for me, I realized that it could easily become an idol for me. That I become secure when I go out of the house because of the name brand on the front of my shirt. Instead of being secure in Jesus. If I feel insecure going out of the house just wearing ordinary clothes, I need to get down on my knees and say, Lord Jesus, remind me of my worth in your eyes so that I don't have to show off to people how much money I have. Reliance on popularity, which goes closely hand in hand with that need to be in style. We've got to wear the right clothes if we want to hang out with the right crowd so that we can become worth something, right? But when your worth is in Christ, suddenly you realize, wow, I am worth so much. And so is every other person around me. I don't need to step on anybody else to get higher because we're all equal at the foot of the cross, aren't we? We don't need to worry about what other people think of us. We don't need to step on other people. You know, I found myself when I started internalizing these things, noticing that I treated homeless people differently. I looked at them and thought, wow, that's somebody in the image of God too, just like me. God doesn't want us to look at people who are mentally disabled or too old to take care of themselves and other people as less worthy. You see, but when we live in a, a culture of self-esteem, self-esteem says, I am worthwhile because of fill-in-the-blank, because I'm pretty, because I'm popular, because I wear the right clothes, 
because I say funny things, because I'm really smart, I get good grades, people like me, I'm really funny. Whatever it is, those things are meaningless. It's nice, you know, God loves our individuality. I love my children's individuality. It's great to see how each one of them is an individual, but I don't love them because of their individuality. I love them because they're my children. And that's the way God is. He doesn't love you because of something that's unique about you. He loves you because you're you. And you can't do anything to make yourself worth more. But when we forget that, these are the fear of man things that come up. And there are lots more. Control issues, codependency, just idolatry, need to date or prove desirability. Have you ever noticed that? When you start feeling a little worse, maybe somebody says something about you that hurts your feelings, you go out and get a skirt that's just a little bit shorter because it makes you feel better. People are going to notice you. You're going to be more desirable. You've got to get your hair looking nice today because you feel especially bad. Needing a best friend. You know, for so many years I thought if I just had one best friend who totally understood me, I would be so happy. I looked for a best friend, but people who I would listen to for two hours might get bored listening to me for 10 minutes. Oh no, now I'm disappointed. This person doesn't really love me. I needed a best friend because I wasn't having that intimacy that I needed with Jesus Christ. And when I started finding that intimacy with him, then that desire to have a best friend became a desire, not a demand, not a need. Escape. There are so many escapes into movies, food, music, YouTube, fantasy, friends, masturbation, sexual thoughts, rescuing others, all these things that you can escape into that temporarily prop you up, they leave you feeling worse later on. Drinking salt water from a broken cistern. At the end of it, you feel worse about yourself because, you know, the movie was great, but when the credits start rolling, you realize, Man, my life looks really bad now. Look what could happen to them in only an hour and a half. <laughs> we have to evaluate our value based on the word of God. The fear of man is all through the Bible. That's what we would expect if something is a fundamental issue that human nature, that carnal nature gravitates to, the Bible is going to deal with it. And that's true. Look at Peter. The fear of man was all over him. He was ready to die for Jesus, but not ready to live for him when somebody pointed the finger of scorn, right? Elijah, he stands up there on that mountaintop and defends God before all the armies of Israel, runs down that mountain. He's fearless. Wow, God, look at all the things that I've done for you. And then Jezebel says, hey, tomorrow your head's going to be on a stick. And he runs for his life. When we fear God, we will fear nothing else. But when we don't fear God, there will be something else that we will fear. King Saul never overcame his fear. You notice with Elijah, at least God knew how to deal with him. With Peter, God knew how to deal with him, right? But King Saul was never willing to deal with his fear of man because his estimation of what people thought of him was so important that what God thought of him became correspondingly small, right? With Peter, what people thought of him was so important because what God thought of him wasn't as big. With Elijah, when God wanted to cure Elijah, he said, how about noticing how big I am, right? He sends this tornado or hurricane or whatever it is, a great fire, these mighty things that show God's love and God's might, his power, the tremendousness of how big God is. And then he says, all right, Elijah, let's talk now. You see, when we understand how big God is, our problems and people shrink to correspondingly small proportions. 
what about Jesus? John 2, 24 and 25 has this beautiful passage. It talks about first how all the people were flocking to Jesus. And then it has these telling words, Jesus did not commit himself to them. That, the, the words commit himself to them, that would be also translated depend upon them or trust them. You see, Jesus didn't need people to love him because he was so secure in his father's love that he, what people thought just, you know, water off a duck's back. It just rolled right off of him. He knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You see, Jesus didn't trust or depend upon people. Not that he didn't enjoy their friendship, not that he didn't love them, but he didn't need them. If you hear the story about the, the rich young ruler, when he comes to Jesus, it says Jesus beholding him loved him. Jesus was capable of loving someone who he knew was going to betray him. Jesus loved Judas so deeply that the other disciples had no idea what was going on. For three and a half years, Jesus is hanging out with all the disciples. He treats Judas just the same as he treats the other guys, with this unutterable love. Would you be able to do that? Would you be able to marry somebody knowing this guy is going to destroy my life? In three and a half years, he's going to have me killed. Could you love him that way? Could you give yourself to him that way? But God can, because God doesn't have to commit himself to self-protection. And when he changes us into his image, we are secure enough that we don't have to be committed to self-protection either. We can love. It doesn't mean that you should trust everybody and leave all your money lying around, but it means that we can love people because we know even if those people don't love us back, God's love will be more than enough for us. Look at the difference between Peter before the cross and Peter after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit is poured out. In Acts 4.13 it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with who? With Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were used to the disciples, these cowardly guys who ran when they confronted Jesus. And with all these soldiers and spears and all, the, the disciples all take off. They knew these guys. They're unlearned fishermen. These guys are nothing. But they were a little unnerved by Jesus because he was never intimidated by them. They hated that about Jesus. He was never intimidated by them. But now, after Pentecost, then the disciples stand up and they're utterly fearless. And everybody goes, uh-oh, all right. I know what's going on with this guy. I recognize this attitude. These guys have been with Jesus. I want to be that way so fearless that I don't care what people say about me. When we truly fear God, we won't fear anything else. I remember when I was, uh, I guess I was in high school, and I was at camp meeting, there was this guy that we thought was really cute, really cute. His name was Matt. <coughs> and I remember people being so surprised when they found out I was hanging out with Matt and his friends. Wow, you know, look me up and down, Nicole? Skinny Nicole in her mismatched clothes is hanging out with Matt. And then one day, I was lounging with Matt and friends in some, some wait area, waiting area or something, and one of their friends was walking across the campus where we were at camp meeting. And so Matt yelled out the window something obscene, and the friend responded by mooning him. Beautiful. 
I didn't have to see that, but I heard plenty about it. Everybody was laughing and roaring in our room. And then we heard a shout outside. Some old guy who was probably like 30 or something, but I thought he was old, you know. <laughs> he comes, he says, hey, hey, stop that. We're like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And Matt goes, okay, guys, play it cool, play it cool, everybody. And they all kind of look around, what, what? And this old guy, age 30 or so, is running toward where we were. He's going to come in the building now. He'd seen people at the window laughing and egging this guy on. So they're running over. He's running over to the, the building. And Matt says, you guys, nobody say anything. Nobody tell him anything. And his friend glanced at him ner nervously and said, what about her? What about Nicole? Because I wasn't in the in crowd, remember? They're giving me the gracious gift of hanging out with them. And Matt says, she's cool. She won't tell. So the guy pounds in. He says, does anybody know who that guy was out there? Oh, the fear of man. Should I tell? I knew I should tell. But that was going to be death to my hope of popularity. I didn't say a word. I was cool. I went out looking for the guy later. I could never find him, the old man, not the uh, young man. You see, I was so afraid of what they thought that I couldn't do the right thing. Not that I could have made a big difference in there, but I knew who the guy was. When he says, does anybody know? I could have said, sure, I'll tell you his name. But I didn't because I was afraid. You see, I feared people more than I feared God. I loved the praise of men more than the approval of God. And when you look at the stories, I mean, the Bible is packed with these stories if you look at it. People who had to choose, do I fear man or do I fear God? Look at Joseph. When Joseph has to decide, do I fear man or do I fear God? I'm not afraid of what Potiphar's wife is going to do to me. I know she'll destroy my reputation and I may well lose my life. I mean, his, his boss is the head of the executioners, right? It's not like Potiphar has a hard time lopping off heads. But Joseph says, no matter what, I would rather die than sin. You see, this is the mentality of those who live at the end of time that we would rather die than sin. We don't live in the fear of man anymore because the fear of God has become so big in our minds. Look at the three worthies. The, Daniel's free, three friends, when Nebuchadnezzar says, this is your last shot, guys, bow or you're going to burn. They say, oh, king, we are not careful to answer to you in this matter. Our God can save us, but let it be known to you, no matter what, we're not going to bow down. Mm-mm. We fear God so much that we don't fear man. That's the kind of people that God wants us to become. But we live in a culture of fear of man. It is the norm. Everybody knows, well, peer pressure, those things. Well, that's just the way you are, right? We all live in the fear of man. But God wants us to live in the fear of him. And when we realize how big God is, then the fear of man shrinks down to manageable size. Most of us, though, we live in fear of man. It's a reality. There's a, a great story I heard about a, somebody who decided to make prank calls. So they, they called five different guys around the town and said, they found out everything. Leave town immediately. These are just five random guys. They, <laughs> by evening, four of them had left town. <laughs> I don't know if it's true. But you know, people live in fear. We all have this shame, these things we don't want anybody to find out about. The, the sins that if somebody else found out what we were doing, we would be so ashamed. Yeah, we can confess them to God. 
that's okay. God already knows anyway. It's all right. He, he, he knows what about me. But for people to know, oh, I wouldn't want people to know that I do these things. You see, the fear of man is so big in our culture. And it's because the fear of God is so small. You know, the Bible is full of praise. And I think this is something that's really important. You know, praise to us nowadays has become this cheap word for, you know, Hallelujah. That is not praise, people. Praise is when you focus on the majesty of God, the glory of the ruler of the universe, who is so holy he dwells in light unapproachable. And yet, when he sees me, this foul, polluted, disgusting sinner, he says, would you like me to purify you so you can come and live in my presence? I'll do it for you. Not because you're so great, but because I am so great. Not because you are so holy, but because I am so holy. If we meditate on the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the greatness of his glory, his character, what he is like, it shrinks us down to manageable size. And we realize our problems are not so big. We stop thinking that the issues that we wrestle with are so great because we see the greatness of the God of the universe. If you find yourself thinking about some problem over and over, day after day, try meditating on how big God is. Your problem will shrink all by itself. You'll realize, wow, God, you knew this was going to happen. You have a plan already to get me out of this situation. I love how you deal with me, God. And we can trust him. We stop trying to have to be control freaks. We stop having to try to tell God exactly how we'd like him to solve this situation and then trying to make it happen. Lord, I'd really like to get together with this guy. He's so holy. I've made a list of all the pros and cons, and I've decided I want to marry him. If it's your will, of course, Lord. I'd really like it. And then we proceed to flirt with him and try to make it happen, just in case God isn't strong enough to actually make it work out, you know, because God is, you know, <laughs> he's way up there, and I'm down here, and the situation's right here in front of me, and I could take care of this, actually. When people are big, God is small. And the solution is not, I'm just not going to think about what anybody thinks of me. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. No, the, the solution is to meditate on the majesty of the ruler of the universe who has poured out all of heaven in one gift to free you from sin. He's not held back. He's not scratching his head going, I wonder if I'm going to be able to find a husband for her. You know? <laughs> he just doesn't wrestle with these things. <laughs> God is so big. And we are so small. How does the world overcome the fear of man? How will the world tell you to deal with your self-esteem issues? It says, you've got to get high self-esteem. In other words, depend on self-affirmations. You can look at this, look this up in different books. You know, these are, this is a kind of a summary from the book When People Are Big and God is Small. A terrific book, by the way, if you're struggling with any of these things or you'd like to learn more. Because there's no way I can summarize the whole book in 50 minutes. Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. This is page 78 of When People Are Big and God is Small. If you need high self-esteem, here's how you get it. The good news is high self-esteem is within the reach of all of us. Depend on self-affirmations. In other words, make a list of all the great things about yourself. Oh, there are some great howlers of ways to build your self-esteem out there on the internet. You know, make a scrapbook all about yourself your favorite colors, <laughs> what you're like. I'm like cut out little words that are all about you and what you're like. I actually have one of these from when I was a teenager. <laughs> it's hysterical. People in 80s clothes, oh my. Anyway, 
Compare yourself with others in positive ways. Wow, that's going to set you free from the fear of man, isn't it? At least I don't wear out of style clothes like her. At least I don't have acne, right? Get affirmation from others. Oh, this is a great one. You can find the best ways to get affirmation from others on the internet. I found one that suggested make a list. You write things I like about your name, Nicole, and you give it to people, your friends and your family members. I don't want to think about what my family members would write on my list if I gave them a list to write things I like about Nicole, but I can guarantee it wouldn't do a lot for my self-esteem. <laughs> things I like about Nicole. And then whenever you feel bad about yourself, get this, they actually literally recommend you do this. You pull out your list, whip out that good old list of things that somebody out there thinks is great about you, and you read them. And you don't think about the bad things. Assume that you're good and lovable. Does the Bible say you're good and lovable? No. It says your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. I'm sorry. You are not going to find any kind of real lasting comfort in saying, I'm okay, I'm okay. No, you're not okay. You're sinful. But God is able to deal with that and to change you into his image and make you into this beautiful person in his image. Worship God as I understand him. This is a great one. Alcoholics Anonymous has done some great things in helping people to break free from things. And I don't mean to say that everybody must understand God the, exactly the same way I do. But we have a problem in our culture that because people are big, God is small. And we shrink God down to what we'd actually like of him. No confrontation of my sin issues, please. Just, you know, love me the way I am. When my husband was... Uh, asking people to describe Jesus and what he means to them in their lives in one of his assignments in class. We read over all the papers and we noticed there was one thing that stood out all the time. Well, he's always there for me. Jesus is always there for me. Wonderful. What does that mean about confronting your sin? What that means is practically, I don't have to deal with my sin issues. I know I'm not following him because that's what many of the papers would say. I'm actually, I know I'm not doing everything that God wants, but the great thing is he's always there for me. That's God as I understand him, a God who doesn't confront me about my sins, a God who isn't majestic, who's actually shrunk down kind of small because that's the way I like him. The world says to do that, and we're going to finish here. How do we overcome idolatry? Focusing on Christ instead of self as the foundation of our identity, worth, and lovability, it really does boil down to that. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him, that joy was saving you, endured the cross, despising the shame. When you're looking unto Jesus, you're being changed by beholding him because that's, that's the way that God changes us, right? We behold him and we see ourselves in our ugliness and then we go, God, would you change me into that? Meditating on who God is so our self-focus is lost in his majesty and his love. This is how you can overcome these cycles of the fear of man and find victory and freedom in this glorious rejoicing and knowing God more and more and loving him more. No, it's not going to make you love yourself in some ways. You're going to actually loathe yourself as you see how sinful you are. But then you'll see how good he is and you'll love him instead. And his love will pour through you and give you that sense of worth and lovability. Amen. How many of you would like to commit to letting God be the foundation and the fountain of your lovability and your worth today. Amen. Let's stand as we want to pray. Lord Jesus, we're making a commitment today to build on the solid rock of your word, what you say about us, instead of the shifting sands of what people think and what we feel. 
Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live like people out in the world live, looking to other things and other people and ourselves for that sense of worth that always drains away. Teach us, Lord, to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, in every aspect of our lives, that we may journey from glory unto glory as we, be changed, we become changed into your image. Thank you, Lord. Amen.